Okay, assalamu alaikum everybody, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, welcome to Saturday, amazing session of Ramadan Mubarak. Everyone, welcome for jo joining us on the interactive and on YouTube. Um, I can't believe we're just in the last, um, I don't know, handful of days for Ramadan. And um, it's been really wonderful, um, you know, being um, able to stay up late, um, not sleep, not... <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's amazing this time, um, but I am so excited um, because tomorrow we have an incredible event. Um, I, I want to say thank you to Mafez, um, who is on our interactive group, um, Mafez Al-Suedan. Her father is going to be here, um, or not here, um, but on Zoom. We're going to have a Zoom conversation, um, and it's going to be incredible. Um, I have to say, like, there are times in my life where I have been in, in just in the presence of greatness, um, and it's like one of those times where you just go, I have no idea, like, what I did to deserve being in such blessed company. Um, I've had, you know, the opportunity, for example, to have dinner with, um, you know, Ayatollah um, Hossein Darcy um, on one end and then the, the Sheikh on the other and just you know like when you have these surreal moments where you look around and you're like what in the world am I doing here and how did I get here and this is one of these moments I actually um, you know didn't know um, anything about um, Tarek al-Suedan and so as part of my preparation I was watching um, the series, and actually I want to um, really um, thank uh, Dr. Sami Al-Eryan for doing this um, Ramadan series on SIGA. SIGA is um, Center for Islam and Global Affairs, which is part of Istanbul Zayim University. Um, and as you know, uh, the Sheikh had a conversation with him last weekend um, about sort of his influences in life and, you know, how his thought developed and a lot of very, very interesting stories. Um, and they have superstars every night for 30 nights during Ramadan. And so um, Dr. Al-Suedan was one, uh, one of the people that he interviewed. And it's, these were like, you know, really meaty conversations for like an hour and a half where they really get into like, you know, what, what was your upbringing like? What were the things that influenced your thinking and your life experience and stuff like that? So I watched the, the interview with, um, with Tark Al-Suedan and I thought, holy cow, I had no idea like what an incredible person, incredible scholar. There's just so much to say. And I was like, okay, what did I do? Because <laughs> I'm going to be um, moderating and, and having, um, you know, hosting, I guess, um, with the Sheikh and Dr. Suidan. So please pray for me. I need prayers that I can do a good job because these are incredible people. And I would really encourage you, if you have the time, to go and watch these two interviews. Um, you know, these are the, the things that you really are grateful to scholars for because um, obviously Dr. Sami, you know, had the vision of um, capturing, you know, these conversations. It's called Conversations in History. And, you know, when he picked the 30 superstars in, you know, in the Islamic world to interview um, and really get to know these, these people, this is such an important service for us as Muslims, especially people, you know, like me, I'm a convert, you know, background, I have no reason to know anything um, Islamic about any of our history or our scholars. So this was an incredible opportunity to just get to know a person who has done so much. So, you know, Tarkal Suedan has published 125 books and he has 22 books in the pipeline. 
You hear this number and you like wonder how in the world can any human being write that many books? But when you hear his story and you hear like what he's done and his convictions and his, his you know, analytical ability and just, you know, his whole life has been dedicated to, as he says, spreading knowledge um, to revive the, the um, Muslim Ummah. And he has analyzed his way into determining why this is his priority for him as an individual and all the things that went into him arriving at this decision and what he felt was really important, you know, confronting um, our world and what he felt he could contribute. Um, and it's an incredible story. And so, and, and so much of it, interestingly, is really important for what we do here um, because I would say we are also, you know, on the, the, the path of trying to revive the Muslim Ummah. And, you know, what better way to do that than through knowledge? And so I'm so excited to bring these two people together because I think that they, you know, are, are giants beyond giants and they um, are beautiful, you know, incredibly um, talented, gifted, you know, I, I don't even have words. They're amazing people that I think we are blessed to have alive in our lifetime that we can actually say, you know, we lived in the same time as these two people. So please join us and if you have a chance, you know, look it up on the Sego website um, and, and watch both, um, you know, Dr. El Suedan and, and the Sheikh's conversations. I think it'll be an incredible um, education and preparation for our conversation tomorrow. So it's a Zoom conversation at one o'clock Eastern time. Um, if you get my weekly email, um, or just go to our website and you can actually register. I know we're close to capacity. I think it's like a hundred person um, registration. We've already surpassed that in terms of registrants, but that's no problem. Then if we need to go overflow, we're also gonna live stream on YouTube. So you, there's, you, know, you won't miss it either way. Um, and of course, we'll record it and make the recording available after the fact. So hopefully people can watch you know, when, when they can. I think it'll be an incredible conversation. Um, okay, inshallah. And then the last thing, so I promised that I would give a little tidbit of book history each time if I think of it, if I, you know, and so I just wanted to share something. What's the time for the conversation? 1 p.m. tomorrow, Eastern time. So, and From that's 8 p.m. Uh, I think we've set aside two hours for the conversation. So, and it's um, 8 p.m. Kuwaiti time. He's going to be joining us from Kuwait, inshallah. So, and thank you, Mafaz. That is just, um, it's going to be incredible. So, thank you. Inshallah. <laughs> inshallah. inshallah. Um, so, my very short um, book history for today is, uh, you know, like we, we, we're in this library, and of course, that when you want to find a book, you can't find it. So, I had to actually go to Amazon and pull it up. <laughs> so, this is The Great Theft. This is the cover of the, the book that the professor wrote back in um, 2005. It was published. Um, it came out, um, you know, shortly after 9-11. Um, at that time, you know, people were obviously, I mean, I think everyone, it's one of those moments where everyone, if you were alive at that time and if you were not an infant, you remember <laughs> where you were and what you were thinking and doing at the moment you learned what happened in, on 9-11. Um, and there was a brief moment in time um, where people were really like, oh my God, who are these Muslims? And what, what is their belief system? And what would allow people to actually commit a crime like that? But it was in a positive way. People were curious because they didn't know anything about Islam. And so there was a window of opportunity where people were actually interested in reading, um, not with an Islamophobic eye, but with a, a genuine curiosity. Um, and so this was one of the books that came out during that time um, before the rise of Islamophobia really took hold. Um, but also at that time, the other thing that, that really arose was this term moderate Muslim. Like everyone was like asking, where are the moderate Muslims? Why, you know, how could this happen? 
And it was one of these terms that was batted around, but nobody actually could define it or did define it. You know, it was just this feeling that, okay, a moderate Muslim was a Muslim who wouldn't bomb things, right, or kill people. Um, but this is the first book that actually came out and, um, you know, defined what does it mean when we talk about moderate Muslims. Okay, now the cover. Anyway, The Great Theft. Um, and um, interestingly, this book, if you know it, it's in two parts. It, um, the first part, it talks about sort of the rise of um, extremism and Wahhabism. So it helps to help have people understand the landscape of, um, you know, the Saudi influence on Islam and the rise of Wahhabism and Puritanism. And, you know, it's um, a really important book um, that we actually received a lot of con uh, communication like from, you know, rabbis and pastors and, and priests and stuff saying, you know, thank you so much for writing this book because now I understand that this is an issue not of Islam per se, but um, of Puritanism in any faith. Um, and so it was really helpful to, you know, try and place that in context. And then the second half of the book is actually um, a, a discussion of what is the difference um, theologically and also, I guess, um, in practice on major points within the Islamic tradition. So it starts with, you know, what is it that all Muslims believe? And then it goes into, you know, like, what are differences, opinions on, on things like women, um, you know, in relationships with non-Muslims, jihad, war, knowledge, the place of God, these kinds of things. Um, and what the professor would do is he would write um, that people really, their beliefs can fall on a continuum from sort of extremism to moderation. And you could fall on, you know, at different places on that, continu on that continuum, continuum, depending on what topic you were talking about. And um, so the book was written largely for, for non-Muslims to understand Islam, but also for Muslims to, um, to sort of check where they were, because at that point, Wahhabism was really the, the primary force if you would go to any masjid, and people were espousing Wahhabi views without even knowing that they were Wahhabi views. So it was a really important book, but also the really interesting story about the history of this book is it was published by um, Harper San Francisco, and um, the original text for The Great Theft, like they wanted a book that they considered a beach read. Like after the fact, they would, you know, they liked having books that were people could take with them to the beach and sit and whatever. So Dr. Wolfeld is not someone that you would actually go to to ask for a book on a beach read. So, um, so the truth of the matter is he wrote um, like a 400 page manuscript intended to be The Great Theft. That was the original text for Reasoning with God. And um, it was in Reasoning with God was primarily in three parts. Like the first part was sort of symptoms of the problem confronting Muslims, things that would go on in Islamic centers, for example, that would show this sort of strange unreasonableness. The second part was um, defining the problem, and then the third part was um, was solutions for the problem. So when when he turned in the manuscript to Harper San Francisco, they read it and they were like what is this? This is like such an academic book. This is not a beach read. And so he, you know, he took the manuscript back and then retreated like literally in a month and wrote The Great Theft, like without anything, like sort of off the top of his head and submitted it. And I think they still felt that that was a little bit too academic, but he really tried to dumb down the text um, for The Great Theft. And then he, and then this book, then the manuscript then sat and he worked on it for over 10 years, like the next 10 years, because he had in his view, dumbed it down, and so he actually wanted to bring it back to sort of, you know, an acceptable level. 
and then it was published in, in 2014. So that's how it exists today. So that's the history of that. But they're both really important books. The Great Theft is actually a really, um, it's adopted in a lot of courses on Intro to Islam. Um, it's not a dumbed down book by any stretch. Some, a lot of people find it actually challenging. So, um, but they're both in, really important for the Islamic education. So that's my book story for today. And um, I'm looking forward to another incredible halakha. Thank you so much. Um, and look forward, hopefully, to seeing you tomorrow. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim mubarik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tawwuh ihsanin ila yawm al-Din. Allahumma shahli sadri wa sallli amri wa ahlul uqdatan min lisani wa qawmi. Uh, I think uh, Grace said it all about tomorrow, inshallah, but I just want to underscore that, inshallah, I think this will be a very special occasion, a uh, very special conversation. Um, Dr. Swedan is, is in very high demand, uh, you know, a, I, I think uh, I have about a couple of thousand followers. Um, he has like a million followers. No, 18 million. 18 million? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, he, he's, do, he's doing us a great favor by, you know, uh, even talking to us. Um, so, sort of uh, having some pity, pity on us. No, he's, you know, he's the real deal, and um, uh, we're just very fortunate. I mean, I don't know. We had, of course, an, an inside track through Mafaz. I don't know if it would have happened if it hadn't been for Mafaz. I, I doubt very much. If I had 18 million followers, I wouldn't pay attention to someone with 2,000 followers. and say, get lost, man. Don't have time for you. But, you know, alhamdulillah, maybe I have 18 million followers in Jannah, you know, in, in heaven, maybe. But then he will have like 50 million followers <laughs> up there. So, no, it's a losing race. No, no hope, no, give up. So just tune in for whatever it's worth. Um, inshallah, we are doing Surat al and um, I am full of uh, apprehension because Surat al-Rad is um, a very layered surah and demanding. Um, uh, and I, I just pray that I can do it justice. Um, so, um, just pray with me. So, first, there are a number of reports that Surat al-Rad was revealed 
after Surah Muhammad, which is a short surah, um, and if it was revealed after Surah Muhammad, then that means also it was revealed after Surah Al-Hadid, which we covered. And there are convincing, or there are several reports that it was revealed before, right before Surah Al-Rahman, which we also covered. So, Hadid, Muhammad, Rad, Rahman. The issue, though, is that there are also convincing reports that Surah Al-Rad was revealed in Mecca. If it was revealed after Surah Muhammad, then that would mean it's a Medinian Surah, that it was revealed in Medina, after the Hijrah. But if the reports that say that it is primarily a Meccan Surah, or totally a Meccan Surah, then so some scholars, like Zamakhshari, for instance, and others, simply said, we don't know if Surat al-Rad was revealed in Mecca and Medina, and there is no way to know. Which makes it a very interesting surah, because we, chronologically, we, are, we either place it between al-Hadid and al-Rahman, and then we sort of know uh, what was going on when it was revealed at the time in Medina. Or we accept the reports that it was not revealed in Medina at all. And then it's likely that it's a late Meccan surah. And it would be likely that it was revealed right before the Isra, and a few people said perhaps even right after the Isra. But this points to a, a reality that we have with the Quran that some sort, some sort, we really don't know um, whether they're Meccan or Medinan. And there's a thesis that was, it actually originated with Orientalists, with German Orientalists, that said that you can tell the difference between Meccan Sur and Medinian Sur by their style. Um, but, and some Muslims adopted that thesis and repeated it. But I think that's largely erroneous. Uh, I know what style they're talking about. I mean, yes, the, the more technical, legalistic style of revelation is all Medinan, but yet there are many Sur that were revealed in Medina that uh, have bear the, the exactly the same style of the Mecca Sur. Um, I mean, for instance, the Rahman, which was revealed in Medina, right? Allah Alam, Allah was best. And I couldn't resolve this issue through scholarly research. 
as much as I've researched this question and went through the reports and went through who said what and why and under what circumstances um, and traced the, the narrations of the report in, in hadith, in, um, in books of tarjih, and, and so on, I couldn't resolve it as a matter of transmission. I couldn't decide whether it's Meccan or Medinian. However, the dhikr that I performed on this surah, and this is, be very clear, through dhikr, so it's not something that I can demonstrate through rational evidentiary means left me convinced that Surah Al-Rad was in fact revealed in Medina and in fact that it is a Surah that was revealed between Al-Hadid and Al-Rahman. And Allah Alam, and Allah knows best. And as we will see, Surah Al-Rad will raise a number of, of issues, but the main theme of Surah Al-Rad is to leave you reflecting and pondering deeply on the notion of change and how change takes place and the right means for progress um, as inshallah we'll see but at the same time it, it, it's a deep reflection upon nature itself and you recall that when we talked about, um, was it the Rahman, when we talked about a Quranic county? Right? Yeah, it was the Hadith. The Hadith? He talks about M. Rahman. Uh, also. If you remember the concept of a Quranic county, that there's the written Quran and then that there is the created Quran, and the created Quran is nature. And that we found, yeah, it is in Rahman and it is in Hadid, both. Oh, yeah. I'm wrong. What? I'm wrong. What is it? I think Shana Rahman. Uh, no, but I mean, even the Hadid talks about how Hadid was sent from to Earth itself, and it invites. It. But we, I think, we talked about it with the Rahman. I think that's when we flagged it. I remember that you you were on your trip. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He experienced it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's when you experienced the Quranic county there because yeah, that's how it stuck in my mind. But it's raised repeatedly, and Surah Al-Rad, Subhanallah, it it presents us um, in the most in the most pronounced fashion, pronounced fashion with the idea of a Quranic county, 
with certain key concepts within that large idea uh, or within that general idea. Okay. Alif, Lam, Mim, Ra, there are um, a rod is in one of six sor that starts out with Alif, Lam, Mim, Ra um, and we, we've talked about the, the, the meanings of Alif, Lam, Mim especially Alif, Lam, Mim in the past but um, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, on it. Alif, Gam, Rim, Ra occurring at the beginning of Al Hadid in particular um, many many Quranic commentators argued that it stood for Anallah and Malik al-Rahman. Anallah and Malik al-Rahman. I am Allah, the Malik, the Supreme, al-Rahman, the Merciful. Um, but of course, as we, we've talked about before, they always go back and say, but we really don't know. Allah Adam, right? So, Alif Mim Ra يدبر الأمر يفصل الآيات لعلكم بلقاء ربكم توقنون. So it starts like a lot of the sword that begin with these letters or a variation of the letters affirming an absolute and general truth in the most resolute and decisive fashion. These, and this refers to the book itself, are the signs of the book, the Ayat al-Kitab, sent by, down by God in truth. And with the full realization that when all is said and done, most people do not believe. We encountered this before, but again, you find some fascinating writing in um, Muslim sources about the difference between 
how one perceives oneself to be Muslim. And that belief without shirk is something else. And that in fact, it is a challenge that most people do not have the type of introspection to purify their iman from elements of shirk, as we'll talk about one. And this ties to a message within Surah Al-Rad that we see in a lot of Surah telling the Prophet again and again and again that do not expect that everyone will follow you and do not expect that everyone will believe you. And in fact, it is the natural state of things that there will be many who deny you. And beyond that, beyond it speaking to the Prophet is a reminder to Muslims themselves that as much as you believe that you possess the truth, and as much as Allah says it is the truth, that does not mean that humanity will accept the truth. And in my view, that's also a clear affirmation of the principle of non-coercion. If coercion goes against the vein of everything that you find in the Quran about whether humanity will in fact accept what Allah's message is or will not. Raise the heavens without pillars, without perceptible pillars. Now in, in the books of tradition, there's always a discussion where, whether when you say raise the heavens without without pillars that could be seen, does this mean that there are pillars? It's just that they're invisible, or that does this mean that there are no pillars? Um, and most end up arguing that saying without pillars that could be seen doesn't mean that there are pillars. But that simply pointing our attention to something that I think the modern mind can understand even much better than the medieval mind, um, that what surrounds the earth, the atmosphere that surrounds the earth, is a very unique and special thing. And it is, it is not just um, 
you know, the, the, the course of things or the normal course of things. But the, in fact, it is a very aptly created. Yeah, it take it. It's a it 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 involves an intricate balance for that atmosphere to be created. Um, that envelops uh, which envelops the earth. Okay. So, and that Allah created creation and then this expression, istawa ala l'arsh, or mounted the throne. In, again, theologically, you have these long discussions about what does it mean to say that God has a throne? And what does it mean to say that God mounts the throne? Mas'alat al-istiwa, as they call it. And that to imagine that there is a throne that resembles anything like human thrones, or that God mounts in any way that resembles the way people mount something, is unbecoming of divinity. Um, but then, what do these expressions mean? And does God use language that in order to bring things closer to the human mind, but in reality cannot be understood in human terms? For, I mean, there's no point in going through, the, because these debates, have, you know, either you have to be a specialist in theology or you have to be interested in sort of medieval philosophical ideas. But it, the gist of it is that Allah's throne is like no other throne. And when Allah mounts the throne, it is a metaphor for... Allah now has has taken charge or Allah is is involved intimately managing Allah's creation this of course goes back to what we've talked about before the medieval idea of the disinterested deity which was very popular um, in pre-modern times that there are gods who could create and forget, or gods who create and abandon, lose interest at some point or another. And that the Quran consistently places itself in the opposite camp, that it, this is not a god that creates and abandons, or a god that creates and forgets. Um, or a god that creates and becomes distracted, as many of the mythologies, religious mythologies of pre-modern pre times would hold.
يدبر الأمر يفصل الآيات لعلكم بلقاء ربكم توقنون God made the sun, the moon, each running to an appointed term. That's normally the, how they translate that. Uh, that they, there is, they run according to a divine plan. That God directs the affairs, expounding the signs so that you may be certain of meeting with your Lord. Um, okay, L let me rephrase, uh, rephrase the, the translation. So, God is intimately involved, fully engaged. ayat that nothing in this count and this is this is uh, um, core to the message of Surah Al-Rad. Nothing in this creation is happenstance or simply a product of coincidence. So what you see or what you might perceive as signs, in fact, they are all according to the way Allah manages this creation. And then, لَعَلَّكُمْ بِلِقَاءِ رَبِّكُمْ يُقِنُونَ Here you have a grammatical debate, if you will, that some have said that what this is saying is God intentionally engages creation to generate signs which human beings can reflect upon so that they may realize belief or they may attain belief that Allah is purposefully generating signs for you so that you believe that the Quranic county as we will see is one where God is constantly saying, here's another sign for you to believe in. Others said, no, it is that God creates signs, stop. These signs means that God runs creation. We call them ayat simply because every creation is an ayah. But then there is a separate statement where Allah is telling human beings, if only you would believe in your Lord. It's like saying, I run everything so meticulously. And everything is run with clear purpose. So what's wrong with you? Why don't you believe? So you have these two, and I, I don't think there's a way to resolve the grammatical uh, argument one way or the other, but for our purposes, it doesn't really matter.
اوكي وهو الذي مد الارض وجعل فيها رواسي وانهارا ومن كل الثمرات جعل فيها زوجين اثنين يغشي الليل النهار ان في ذلك لايات لقوم يتفكرون so Allah is the one that extended the earth and then made in the extended earth anchors. Normally anchors are meant to, are understood to be mountains. That literally these mountains hold the crust of the earth in place. Because elsewhere, the, Allah says that Allah anchors the earth so that and so that it might not, so that it might remain stable. And the flowing rivers, and then we come to this issue of. Let's see how they translate it first. Three, um, every kind of fruit God placed therein two kinds. He, okay. Yeah, God placed therein two kinds. That this again gave serious pause. Is it that God is saying that of every fruit there are two kinds? Or is God saying that the law of creation is a law of coupling? And if it is the law of coupling, Is it what they call tanasubiya or adad? And I'll explain it in a second. So, if you say that of every fruit, two kinds, empirically, that's problematic. Because do we have of every fruit, two kinds? I don't think so. I think of, you know, there are many kinds. You know, how many kinds of mangoes are there? Right? How many kinds of bananas? How many kinds of apples? So it is not... Some said, well, the coupling here refers to male and female. That all plants and that some plants, the organs for reproduction, meaning male and female organs, occur in a single plant. So the coupling still holds true because it, it, it doesn't matter if male and female is in two separate plants or in a single plant that has the means of pollinating itself. Um, that's 
possible. I mean, I'm not an expert in 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 this. You know, if scientifically that's, but the idea that everything reproduces through a process of some form of insemination or pollination or intervention, either on a single plant or two separate plants. But some said, well, but here, the language itself doesn't say I've created male and female or created organs of reproduction in in a samarat. It says which creates the idea that there are constantly a Two types of forces, if you will, positive and negative, or in our language today, that you know, a a DNA DNA code has two parts to it that comes together. Of course, they didn't know about DNA codes, but they described it. Said, well. the language would connote that the law of creation itself is the law of duality. That you have bitter and sweet, you have light and dark, um, what were some of the other? You have cold and hot, you have abyad wa aswad, darker and lighter. And that this duality, as we as we'll see, is important to understand the nature of creation itself. We get even to as we'll we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a little bit whether human beings themselves are subject to this law of duality. Some went beyond duality and said, but it's not just duality, but it is contrasts, specifically contrasts. And like bitter and sweet, dark and light, um, up and above. So for instance, they said, when you take a seed, a single seed, part of the seed becomes roots, underground and part that goes above ground. And they saw this uh, this law of Abdad as a contrast as essential for understanding even spiritual forces, as we'll see. That, it, we'll talk about this in a second, that even when it comes to understanding yourself, you must think in terms of your own duality, your own 
contrast your own force and its antithesis. I will talk about that in a second. So, this idea of contrast you'll find, like for instance, in Materidi, um, who is, although obviously, as you know, Materidi dissented from the Mortezani school of thought, but he's still very much influenced by the idea of contrast as an as essential to the concept of duality itself, uh, which was very widespread among a lot of Mu'tazili theologians. God, I can never memorize them. Where the button is to All right. And that in the same duality you find in Thamarat, and Thamarat is not necessarily just fruit, but Thamarat is anything that grows. A Thamar is anything that emerges and produces and lives. A Thamar doesn't necessarily need to be tasty or edible. A Thamar doesn't necessarily need to be good. Some thamar you can eat and it kills you, right? Some thamar is used for firewood. Some thamar is used for building. Some thamar is used for whatever. Now, those who either Ashab al-Tanasubiya, the, the duality, or the the adad, the, the people who argued about contrast, say, in the same way that Allah points our attention that the thamarat is immediately followed by Laylu and Nahar, night and day, and that the way that night and day evolve into each other. sort of literally like rolled into each other in a seamless and, and constant fashion that if you reflect upon that, as, and now we have the concept of a Quranic county, if you read that as a created Quran, Rationally, you'll understand that this is not happenstance. And this all belongs to an owner. That all of this belongs to someone who owns it. And if so, then you will also understand that those, and this is now verse 5, that those who are so, um, those who are so resistant, those who think that the idea of resurrection is so far-fetched, are in, in some, in themselves very disingenuous. 
Because for Allah, the same God that constantly creates the law of life and death, dark and night, bitter and sweet, Jannah and Nar, is a God that easily can roll life into death and death into life. And so resurrection is not an issue, it's not a challenge. That in fact, as easily as law, Allah creates everything that you see that, and some theologians went even further in saying that what Allah is pointing our attention to is that in the same way that duality, the duality of life necessitated death, death necessitates life. that the cycle is not complete and that Allah created a law in creation itself that every death of a thing leads or feeds into a life of a thing. Everything that dies gives life to something. And that Allah created this so that we may reflect and realize that our own death is only a step towards our own life. Okay. No, oh, did I skip an ayah? I, yeah, I skipped an ayah, sorry. وفي الأرض قطع متجاورات وجنات من أعناب وزرع ونخيل صنوان وغير صنوان يسقى بماء واحد ونفضل بعضها على بعض في الأكل إن في ذلك لآيات لقوم يعقلون Notice here, this is four, which is... Um, Okay, so we spread out the earth, placed mountains and streams. Have you got, no, sorry. Upon the earth, there are neighboring tracts, vineyards, sown fields, and date palms of shared root and not of shared root, watered by one water. And we have favored others in bounty, truly, in that are science for people who understand. Okay, the only thing I'll say about this translation from the study Quran is what is the point? of pointing your attention to this. The idea is that, look, the substance of this earth is the same. It, it, the, the basic elements for creation are the same. But yet, out of these basic elements, this, this, the, the, ard, the, the, ground earth as it out of these basic elements you will find that the, that the topography varies greatly and that 
desert is next to a vineyard that is next to whatever that it is it, the the variety in topography there is great diversity but also great unity it is the same constituent elements again and again and that the element for life the secret of life is always one and the same and that's water and that whether the plant is poisonous or the plant is bitter or the plant is sweet it is always fed by the same water sunwan waghayr sunwan that in palm trees you know palm trees can can share the same base and it's it's remarkable you know they you, you see like five ten palm trees all, all with the same base and they actually share the roots and it's it's quite remarkable because they they you know they don't conflict and they grow and thrive or they grow individually that's what sunwan and ghayr sunwan means that they are either a shared base or not shared base and that Note again, Surah Al-Rad is inviting you to the created Quran, a Quranic county. That even whether plants have a shared base or not shared base is no accident. It is a purposeful, intentional creation by the Lord, who engineers it in this way. And that if you reflect upon the miracle of the fact that all is fed by the same nectar of life, water, but yet the results vary enormously, as diverse as fruits are and as, as everything that comes from water, you will see that again this is something that testifies for a creator. What's interesting here is that the, the, the tense that Allah uses here, Allah doesn't say you prefer some of it over other in eating. But it's, Allah sort of adopts the, the internal voice and says, and we prefer some of it. It's this is important for Sufi Ask Tafasir. In Sufi Ask Tafasir, they notice every time Allah speaks to us with the um, singular or not say, but what is it, first tense of the we. Because they see this as uh, as tawadu min Allah that as it is an act of Allah teaching us modesty, sort of stepping down, being one of us, if you will, and saying, "I understand that I've created part of your diversity. Is that as much of diversity in creation that I've that I've produced? You yourself are diverse." 
as diverse as creation is because you prefer this and that and you don't know why you prefer this and that. Some of you like apples, some of you like oranges, some of you like sweet, some of you like bitter, etc., etc. As so many theologians say that human taste, the taste itself, the fact that you prefer, you know, you say you have your favorites in food, is itself proof of creator. Okay. Then we come to the point, verse 5, where in Surah Al-Rad, where, you know, why are they, in fact, if anyone, if there is any surprise at all, the surprise is that they find it hard to believe that there will be <clears throat> reincarnation for human beings. Or resurrection, rather. Okay. And of course, as you notice in 5, that verse 5 has the threat that in resurrection, um, those who will be resurrected in shackles because of their disbelief. Okay, so here selections from the tradition, as I often do. So um, this is about in the context of verse four. So first I'll read it in Arabic and then I'll paraphrase it. Where it says, after it says Sunwan or Ghayr Sunwan, that there's shared bases and, and isolated uh, palm trees and that this, and that you we prefer some of it over others in issue of taste. Um, and that in this are signs for people who reflect So the quote here says, فَلَا بُدْمِنَ التَّفَكُّرْ فِي هَذِهِ الْأُمُورِ وَيُقَالْ أَخْلَاقُ الْأَبْدَالِ عَشَرَةَ أَشْيَاءِ سَلَامَةُ الصُّدُورِ وَسَخَاوَةَ فِي الْمَالِ وَصِدْقُ اللِّسَانِ وَتَوَاضُعَ النَّفْسِ وَالصَّبْرُ فِي الشِّدَّةِ وَالْبُكَاءِ فِي الْخَلْوَةِ وَالنَّصِيحَةِ لِلْخَلْقِ وَالرَّحْمَةِ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ والتفكر في الأشياء وعبرة من الأشياء and then it's عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم and then it has a hadith so what he's saying is that when Allah invites us to reflect on these issues There is an a priori issue, which I, I find very fascinating, because it's what you can call the ethics of reflection. The larger context is that he's arguing, why is it that some people reflect, and they, they reflect upon these things, and their heart melts, and they... This is the beginning of their path to the Lord. 
they they look at palm trees, shared bases, unshared bases, and it it moves their soul, their heart, their being. They get goosebumps, while others reflect and say, "Oh, that's interesting," and they move on. So why is it that we have this? So he says, "Well." because there are ethics for reflection. And listen to this. So these are the ethics that he is, is saying that those who reflect upon the signs of the Lord, Al-Quran al-Kawni, created Quran, and in fact it becomes their path to the Lord, have the following ethics. Salamat al-Sudur, a clear heart, meaning they're not vindictive. Wasakhawa fil-man, and they're generous. Wasudq fil-lisan, and they're truthful, they're not liars. Watawadu' fil-nafs, they're modest. Wasabr fil-shidda, they are patient when um, inf- when uh, uh, hardship inflicts them. That when they're alone, they shed tears. They care enough to give advice to people. In other words, they're not disinterested in other human beings. وَالرَّحْمَ mu'min And merciful towards believers. And after all of that, they are capable of learning, extracting a lesson from things they reflect upon. What's fascinating is the... Is is that you're combining ethics such as being truthful or being generous with the capability to think correctly. That if if your ethics are wrong, your thinking will be wrong. وَإِنَّ رَبَّكَ لَذُو مَغْفِرَةٍ لِلنَّاسِ عَلَى ظُلْمِهِمْ وَإِنَّ رَبَّكَ لَشَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ That here he's talking, Allah is talking to the Prophet specifically. Uh, good question. I don't know. Um, uh, can you guys check check uh, Ismail Haqqi if the quote is from Ismail Haqqi um, unless the, 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 the computer people can figure out like where the quote came from yeah sorry guys Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
No? Yeah, it's Haqqi. It's Haqqi? Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Okay. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking to the Prophet and saying, I, I know that they tease you, sneer at you by saying, okay, br bring on the punishment. Um, this verse 6 is one of the reasons that some argued that this is Meccan because th this type of challenges where the the uh, Meccans would tell the prophet or you know if if you're a prophet go ahead and bring the punishment took place in Mecca but it also took place in Medina when the, the prophet would invite um, tribes around the Medina area I mean it's it didn't stop anyway and although that although there are many examples of nations that in fact have sustained God's wrath but yet they challenge you specifically in 6 that comment which becomes important for later on in, in the for the rest of the surah وَإِنَّ رَبَّكَ لَذُو مَغْفِرَةٍ لِلنَّاسِ عَلَىٰ ظُلْمِهِمْ That although people, people in general, believers and unbelievers, are often unjust, God is constantly forgiving. And that parts of the law of creation, in the same way that at the beginning of the surah, it tells us that most people will not believe, is that God is constantly forgiving many of the wrongs that believers and unbelievers commit. And that this is part of the namus, part of the of the law of creation itself. Okay. وَيَقُولُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوْلَا أُنْزِلَ عَلَيْهِ آيَةٌ مِنْ رَبِّهِ إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ مُنْذِرٌ وَلِكُلِّ قَوْمٍ هَادٍ So, the disbelievers... There is a report that says that a group of disbelievers, they're, they're, some say that they were from Mecca, some say that they were from Thaqif, other reports say that they were um, from Ta'if, I believe, anyway, that they would tell the Prophet, well, Moses parted the Red Sea, Jesus resurrected the dead. Bring about a miracle like the miracles of the Bible or the biblical prophets. And that they would explicitly say 
the Quran doesn't count as a miracle. Now, in theological sources, the response of theologians or Quran commentators to this is that some argued, well, the Prophet did have miracles like feeding an army out of a single dish or like water flowing between his hands, in other words, putting his hands somewhere and then water springs forth. But that these miracles were, in the eyes of these disbelievers, insufficient. That they didn't, didn't rise to the level of the miracles of biblical prophets like Jesus and Moses, and that they, that's why I discounted them. This is one response. Another response is that, in fact, none of the miracles that the prophet reportedly performed, physical miracles, have been reliably reported. And that, in fact, the Quran was the prophet's sole miracle. The idea that the Quran is the prophet's sole miracle is is not the popular idea in modern times. But in pre-modern times, it was, it had a far greater backing than it does in modern times. But what theologians spend a great deal of time on is responding to why it was necessary that the Quran be the prophet's miracle. And what they say in short is the following, is that miracles of biblical prophets impressed the people who witnessed them. But anyone that did not witness them, they became mythology. The minute a miracle is reported from one person to another, leave alone from one generation to another, it is myth. You either take it or leave it. And what happened throughout history is that people largely leave it or embellish it and change it to co-opt the myth to what their cultural religious beliefs were. And that the Prophet Muhammad came with a very different paradigm. And that is an end to the magical stage of things, to a continuing miracle placed in a text, which is the Quran. Now, that is precisely why the entire edifice of Islam is hinged on whether you center yourself on the Quran or not. If you are a Muslim, but the Quran is not significant to you, we have a problem because it is the 
living miracle and the continuing miracle, and the miracle ju justifies the entire prophecy of Muhammad So, and as we said, the idea that humanity has now evolved to a new stage where Allah will put a continuing revelation and a continuing miracle in their midst, but Allah will no longer send prophets to perform tricks that dazzle and that earn loyalty for that prophet for a period of time as that prophet lives or whoever witnessed the miracle. And that, the challenge that Allah puts before humanity is the challenge of tafakkur and ta'akkur, which Surah Ar-Rad begins with. That now the challenge is that you reflect upon the continuing miracle and that your faith be based on that reflection. But here is where a lot of theologians then come and say, well, does this, are most human beings capable of proper reflection so that they can end with Iman? And the interesting, then this is, what I have noticed, and I might be wrong, because this, I mean, I've researched this for about 10, 20 years, but it needs more research. I've noticed that those who are, require ethical virtues for correct thinking tend to be uh, skeptical and pessimist and say that, in fact, most people will not end up believing. While those who did ignore the issue of ethical virtues for proper thinking, I mean, they, they, they don't, they're not impressed by the idea. And they, they think that reflection is a matter of just coming to an obvious conclusion in their, in their opinion that creation is created. And if it's created, it has a creator. And that that's not very hard. And that you don't need virtue to see that, how obvious that is. Um, but I think the, the sort of the, I'm fascinated by the whole idea of ethical virtues for proper rational thinking. Although I, uh, to my knowledge, no one has actually studied it. Okay. وَيَعْلَمُ مَا تَحْمِلُ كُلُّ أُنْثَى وَمَا تَغِيضُ الْأَرْحَامُ وَمَا تَزْدَادُ This is, you know, what, what, what every pregnancy is, مَا تَغِيضُ الْأَرْحَامُ is whether a pregnancy is longer or shorter, whether a pregnancy is terminates prematurely, that this is all within Allah's knowledge. There's also, um, 
uh, 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 a lot of some Muslims said, well, you know, modern science can find out the gender of a baby. So what's the big deal about God knowing what's in a... Um, well, when Allah says, God knows what every female carries. God is not telling you, I just know the gender. In other words, I know what's inside. Meaning, I know the person. I know, you know, you want modern terms, I know the genetical code of that baby. I know how tall this baby is going to be. I know how long this baby is going to live. I know how smart this baby is going to be. I, I know everything that there is to know about this baby. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure why I, get, I keep getting that question from young Muslims that, well, you know, isn't it a problem now that we can know the gender and God, you know, so doesn't that invalidate? Maybe it's just a lack of imagination. I don't know. Okay. Alim al ghaybi wa shahada al kabiru al muta'al. Although this is not the dhikr for this surah, but this phrase, Alim al ghaybi wa shahada al kabiru al muta'al, is a phrase that is a thick phrase. If you sit at night and repeat it a few hundred times, you'll see its power. Um, which is verse 9, nor of the seen and unseen, the great, the exalted, a kabir al-mut'al. The only thing I just want to say that al-mut'al is grammatically not just the exalted but it nothing can possibly be supreme or higher to the Lord which means it's a perfect way of summing up the idea that nothing escapes God's attention. Don't be tempted to think that any of it is not part of what God knows and what God plans. Okay. Ten... Uh, alike among you, who, those who speak secretly and those who do do, do so openly, those who lurk by night and those who go first. I don't know why the translations sometimes just always they they they, they deflate me. I don't know. Um, although the study Quran is a good translation, but the translations in general deflate me. I feel deflated when I read the, the translation. سواء منكم من أصر قول ومن جهر به ومن هو مستخف بالليل وسارب بالنهار. Yes, it, it is 
whoever speaks secretly or speaks loudly, yes, it is, or, um, how did they put it? Or those who lurk by night or go forth by, by, by day, it, it is, but the words are more pressing than that. Um, it's as if God say it's saying to you, you can't hide whether you say something or not. There are no secrets. Understand that in your relationship to God, there are no secrets. In Sufi Estefasir, they, they, they write a great deal about the fallacy of human beings thinking that although they say we believe, but they often, their attitude towards the self is as if they think that God doesn't know certain things about them. And so if they are committed a lot of sins, they are often say, well, we're embarrassed to talk to God because we've done X, Y, Z. Well, but God knows it. You're not keeping secrets. Or if they're tempted to commit sin, they often get a, a cognitive dissonance about God's perfect belief. So they, they pretend as if that sin somehow is not in God's complete radar. وَمَنْ هُوَ مُسْتَخْفٍ This phrase, whatever dwells secretly or dwells unseen in the night, or whatever moves in the day, as we will see in later on in the surah, gains particular significance because part of Surah Al-Rad, it's telling you that creation is much more than what you see. But with all the, the um, interesting puzzles, about creation that Surah Al-Rad will present you with, that you have to understand it is perfectly accounted for and understood by the creator of things. Especially when you deal with dark forces. Um, people often in their fear forget that nothing escapes God's knowledge and God's sovereignty. And the reason for the fear is the belief is shaken, especially when you confront scary things. After having told you that there are things that dwell in the night Secret things, mustakhf, meaning mustakhfin, you don't see it. 
and uh, are things that are sarib in the heart that move and sarib implies also that they're unseen they move in the day but they're unseen comes the verse that is one of the verses that is most famous for Surah Al-Rad, in Surah Al-Rad. لَهُ مُعَقِّبَاتٌ مِّن بَيْنِ يَدَيْهِ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِ يَحْفَظُونَهُ مِنْ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِقَوْمٍ حَتَّى يُغَيِّرُ مَا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ وَإِذَا أَرَادَ اللَّهُ بِقَوْمٍ سُوءًا فَلَا مَرَدَّ لَهُ وَمَا لَهُمْ مِنْ دُونِهِ مِنْ وَالِ so first the raw translation which we'll, we'll talk about but it's just the raw translation attendant angels that go in front of a person and to a rear of a person guarding the person by God's command. God, truly God, alters not what is in the people until they alter what is in themselves. And when God wills destruction for a people, there is no repelling it because of, apart from God, there is no protector. Because this verse is heavy, let's take a two-minute break. I, I need a breather before I take on this verse. Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Oh, where's Grace? She'll, she'll be here in one minute. Um, in the intermission, are they are they back? Yeah. Okay. In the intermission, uh, my my students convinced me that um, Arad is Meccan, not Medinan. So I changed my my position from I believe it's Medinan to I believe it's Meccan. Because the reasons we brought up are compelling. Uh, okay. لَهُمْ عَقْبَاتٌ مِنْ بَيْنِ So, there is, most scholars said that مُعَقْبَات here means that there are angels that are all around you and that these angels all perform tasks that often are protective tasks um, and that to, to um, carry out God's will. And there is a hadith that even says that these, you know, the, the hadith 
say as much as 10 angels for every human being. Not not a very reliable hadith, but uh, you know, it's it's in the tradition anyway. There is another view uh, adopted by, reported by Ibn Abbas and adopted by commentators like Al-Asfani that say, doesn't mean angels protecting an individual, but rather a very different meaning that human beings mistakenly believe that they can overcome or avoid God's will and that in fact nothing saves them from God's will or nothing will change God's will. Um, The, if we if we can't rely on the hadith that says that there are in fact in you know several angels that are in front of you behind you serving to make sure that God's will takes place the hadith itself is so we is problematic so then we go to the term waqibat and between one's hand and behind a person depending on how you construct grammatically this could mean protecting someone with God's command or protecting or um, something that is against God's command and it all depends on the grammatical construction So some have suggested that مُعَقِّبَاتْ مِنْ بَيْنِ يَدَيْهِ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِ is a third alternative. And that is what a human being does, leaves traces. And that these traces are, they surround you. They, they are what is between your hands and what, it, what you leave behind. It is what, it's like what, what you earn with your own two hands. So that's and that is why it is literally described as something that is right there in your arms. And what you leave behind you. And that these traces are uh, 
and that these traces are um, what mark your course and will sometimes, but that regardless of the traces, God's sovereignty is supreme. I do believe, not because of this verse, but because of, of, of other things, that um, human beings are accompanied not by angels, but by at least an angel that keeps the record. That is not something... But I also believe that human beings have other attachments that are capable of accompanying a human being. Mu'aqqabat seems, between the alternative of angels that accompany you, sort of protecting you, and the idea that human beings think that they can overcome God's will, I tend to think that the third alternative is more consistent with the way the verse is. That it, it's talking about what the trail that you yourself leave. Um, but yet God's will is supreme. Allah Adam, I mean, I'm not sure. It, I could be wrong, and it could be, in fact, referring to angels, but the idea that if human beings were, in fact, accompanied by a multitude of angels, it would seem to me that God would make such a point clear and would repeat it more than once. And that so the idea would be, uh, wouldn't be left conjecture. Um, the phrase is open-ended. I mean, مُعَقِّبَاتٌ مِنْ بَيْنِ يَدَيْهِ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِ يَحْفَظُونَهُ مِنْ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ But then, note that the verse doesn't stop there, but it continues on to say, and the majority of pre-modern commentators understood this to mean that if people enjoy God's blessings, God doesn't take these blessings away until they start changing and earn the loss. So if God gives you bounties as a nation, as a people, that you will continue to enjoy it unless or until such time as you do things that um, warrant taking these blessings away from you. That's the way that the majority of commentators understood it in the pre-modern world. 
in the modern world, a new understanding of this verse became far more popular. And that is a more positive understanding of this phrase, of this ayah. And that is, God only changes a people to the better if they change themselves. So the more modern understanding is often cited by reformers to say, well, until Muslims work to improve their own status, God is, can't, is not going to help them. Until you become better human beings, well, things are not going to get better. Because God only helps those who help themselves. While the pre-modern understanding is, well, God is not going to take away blessings until you give cause for God to take away these blessings. I think both meanings are plausible. And both meanings can simultaneously be correct. There's no need, they're not mutually exclusive. If God, ha if God gives the people blessings, God is saying that you will continue enjoying these blessings, but if you don't act justly towards the blessings that God has given you, they will be taken away. And at the same time, if you don't have blessings and you want blessings, you have to change ethically, morally, to warrant God helping you and giving you blessings. Now, if we understand this phrase in light of the term mu'akkabat, mu'akkabat linguistically can also, can literally mean your trace, the traces you leave behind. Not just what accompanies you, as in angels or otherwise, but your legacy, your footsteps. And I think that's consistent. Then the first part of the ayah is consistent with the second part of the ayah if it's understood that way. So it's like saying, with God's, with God's, under God's sovereignty, under God's full power, you act and you earn the consequences right between your hands and you leave traces behind you of what you've done. And these mu'akkabat are either good or bad. And if they are bad, that means that God will no longer support the blessings that you have and you might lose them. And if they're good, God might help you rise and earn blessings that are deserved by your effort. And this way, 
we can resolve this whole debate that has taken place about this verse, about whether angels or not angels or so on. If Muqabat is understood as your handiwork, your traces, then the second part of the ayah makes perfect sense. Everyone follow what I'm saying? And of course, what what is often cited um, in the context of this verse is the hadith that if if people see injustice and they don't act to prevent it, yushiku an Allah bi'aqab, that then Allah will allow or Allah will permit all of them to suffer the consequences of punishment, suffer the consequences of injustice. And that, citing that hadith in this context, which is always cited, um, would make perfect sense. Because then, Ma'akabat is what you've earned. And if you allow injustice to take place, these are your Ma'akabat. And these are the consequences of your actions. You've allowed injustice to take place, you haven't stood up to resist injustice, you didn't stand to change injustice, and then God allows you to suffer the consequences thereof. And of course, God's reminder that if you stand up to change the consequences of your actions, you must remember that your well, your ally, your support is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it's always easy to forget that and to make these decisions about justice and injustice separate and apart from God's role, which I think is very problematic, obviously. Okay. He shows you lightning. And clouds forming, heavy clouds laden with rain. But then we get the most fascinating um, statement وَيُسَبِّحُ الرَّعْدُ بِحَمْدِهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ مِنْ خِيْفَتِهِ وَيُرْسِلُ الصَّوَاعِقْ فَيُصِيبُ بِهَا مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَهُمْ يُجَادِلُونَ فِي اللَّهِ وَهُوَ شَدِيدُ الْمَحَالِ Okay, so here then the thunder 
This is 13. Let's see what's on the bottom. The thunder. Supplicates God or repeats hymns, as the Quran says, and the angels as well. And Wayursul Salak then sends either lightning or storms, could, could be either, to afflict whomever Allah wishes. And yet, they argue with you about God, although God is all omnipotent and all powerful. Shadid al-Mahal basically means God is extremely resourceful, if you want a literal meaning. Now, here we pause again. Why? Because there was an ancient belief that thunder. is um, literally moved around by angels. Some even believe that thunder itself, itself literally, was a living angel. And this belief made it into some of the commentaries. So if you read a lot of the commentaries, you'll find that they'll say what God is saying is that the angels themselves move the thunder and send the lightning. And there's angels actively busy creating the thunder, moving the thunder to wherever God wants it to go, and sending the lightning. And some will... in, in Muslim commentaries, some have transplanted the idea that instead of thunder being a god, but thunder actually being a living angel. And they have a name for the angel and everything. Um, Now, I, I don't think you're very surprised that I don't subscribe to that view. Um, I don't think angels move the, the lightning and thunder, and I don't think there is. However, so then that phrase, thunder repeats God's hymns or supplicates to God, what does it mean? And it is understood angels repeat, their the, the reverence towards God makes them constantly supplicate, but we know that angels are in this constant state of supplication. But why mention the supplication of angels, the reverence of angels, in the context of mentioning thunder? We have to go back to what tasbih means. What is 
سبح حميد تسبيح means تنزيه that it either pronouncing, articulating, or demonstrating the oneness and singularity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what tasbih is. That whenever you say God is one and God has no like, that is tasbih. Tasbih can be articulated by a rational being or can be articulated by any being. So if I take a tape recorder and I have it repeat subhanallah, that's tasbih, although it's not a living thing. If I teach a parrot to say subhanallah, that's tasbih. But beyond that, anything that attests to the oneness and singularity of Allah is in a state of tasbih. And Surah Al-Rab takes you to invite you to look, as we will see, to entire nature, not just as, as proof for rational thinking being of the oneness of Allah, but that nature itself testifies to Tanzihillah, that nature itself testifies to the one and only that this creation could not have been the product of a multitude of gods. And that this creation could not have been a product of an accident. And that thunder, if it invokes fear or trepidation in you. In fact, you must remember that it simply testifies to its maker, its originator in the first place. Now, angels do not have a choice when they supplicate the oneness of Allah. In mo at least in, in most theologians, because they think that Satan was jinn, not an angel. And that because and because angels are not capable, unlike in Christianity. In Islam, angels are not capable of disobeying or rebelling. They don't have that choice. But in that sense, if angels do not have the choice, their supplications and tanzihullah is exactly the supplication of inanimate objects like thunder.
anything that does not have the choice to disobey by its mere existence and performance of the functions for which it was created is supplicating God and is in a state of tasbih. Now, in Sufya's tafsir, we get the verse on Rod. Oh, before I get to the Sufya's tafsir, I, I, I forgot something about the traditional tafsir. There are reports that are often uh, said in the context of this verse that in Mecca um, there were people, uh, their names were, I don't remember their names, Ibn Tufail wa Arbad bin Rabi'ah that they came to the Prophet and that they challenged the Prophet or they argued with the Prophet and fought with the Prophet and told the Prophet that um, if you're really a Prophet, <clears throat> why don't you send lightning and thunder to strike us down? And that they continued to argue with the Prophet and then that God punishes them by, in fact, sending a lightning bolt to kill them. At least kill one of them, and then the other guy got a boil on his face and died from a painful boil and whatever. Um, and that that's the occasion for revelation of this verse. And that that's why it says that this, this report about um, Arbad and, and Tufail are not at all reliable. And so we cannot count on them as occasions for relations. For I, I, don't, I don't think that incident took place in the first place. Uh, although Arbad and Tufail did exist, but we find a lot of reports that in fact Arbad or Tufayl in fact converts to Islam, that he, some reports say that he died in a, in a duel, that so they're just very problematic. But you'll find them in a lot of traditional tafsir, they'll tell you that these verses was revealed because God struck unbelievers with lightning as punishment uh, I wouldn't count, put much weight on these reports. So when it says, This is in, again in 13, that they dispute concerning God um, that they they say that this is in reference to the disputations of Arbad and Tufail with the Prophet, but as I said, um, not reliable. 
Okay. So then the Sufi asked Tafsir. The Sufi asked Tafsir, take the reference to the lightning and the thunder as entirely metaphorical. And they say that I might have actually No, um, I didn't. Anyway, they, they say that it is a metaphor for the way Allah tests the human heart with thunderous events that cause extreme restlessness and anxiety. And that every thunder that strikes your heart is Allah saying, wake up and come to me. And that if you open your heart, what follows the thunder is the lightning of enlightenment that when you get to the point where you say, God, I'm tired of being scared of the thunder of life. God, I open myself to you. God will send as if a bolt of lightning where you will feel closer to God in one instant for one minute, one hour, one day, than you've ever done before. If you jump on the opportunity, you are on the path of Taraqi. If you don't jump on the opportunity, you go back to zero. So if you feel really close to God that day, but then the next day, you're, you decide, oh, I'm too tired. I'm not going to, you know, I felt like praying and reading Quran yesterday, but today I don't feel like it. You've, you've passed on the opportunity. If on the other hand, you say, this was a message, and I get the message, and I am now committed to change, that that becomes your the beginning of your journey and so a lot of there's a lot written in in a lot of detail about this whole experience of thunder and lightning that in the sufias tradition So it's the Maghrib. 
Oh, it's smuggled. One minute. One minute. One minute? Just not smuggled. One minute is smuggled. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now the minute is passed, yes. so it is smuggled. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, <laughs> we have to stop to pray Maghrib and breakfast. Okay, guys, we have to stop to break to pray Maghrib and breakfast. I, I hope some of you can break fast too. Um, Maybe if they invent the technology, we could send them food. It's okay, they have food. No, they, they have food? You guys have food? They, they give me thumbs up. Okay, alhamdulillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, um, the, the, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but the the concept of iman with shirk, of course, the, this is um, which I, I mentioned earlier in the halakha, the um, on um, when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Wama yu'minu aktharhum billah illa wahum mushrikun." Most of them, most of those who believe in Allah or the most of those who become believers still are associating partners with Allah. So shirk and iman are not necessarily ex mutually exclusive. Um, although they, they should not coexist, but shirk often contaminates iman. Joe wrote a whole dissertation on shirk so, <laughs> so yeah, he, he, he should give a lecture about shirk and Islamic theology. Okay. So, then in verse 15, Another metaphor that often those who don't believe their efforts in life is like as if they're extending their hands to be to drink water, but they're unable to do so. That goodness, the blessing itself, which here is symbol, symbolized by water. This is verse 15 that we're on. Um, it does not, in fact, materialize because the bases are wrong. Okay. And then we get more into the dualities of Surat Ar-Rad when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in 16 says 
that blindness and sight are not equal, darkness and light are not equal, that in fact understand that although things are created with their contrast, but the contrast is there so that you keep in mind the inequality of things, and we'll see how that concept will, will develop throughout the world. And then, as many believe that 17 is the heart and core of Surah Al-Rad. أَنزَلَ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً فَسَالَتْ أَوْدِيَةٌ بِقَدَرِهَا فَاحْتَمَلَ السَّيْلُ زَبَدًا رَابِيًا وَمِمَّا يُقِدُونَ عَلَيْهِ فِي النَّارِ ابْتِغَاءَ حِلْيَةٍ أَوْ مَتَاعٍ زَبَدٌ مِثْلُهُ كَذَلِكَ يَضْرُبُ اللَّهُ الْحَقَّ وَالْبَاطِلِ فَأَمَّا الزَّبَدُ فَيَذْهَبْ جَفَاءً وَأَمَّا مَا يَنْفَعُ النَّاسِ فَيَمْكُثُ فِي الْأَرْضِ كَذَلِكَ يَضْرُبُ اللَّهُ الْأَمْثَالِ الَّذِينَ اسْتَجَابُوا لِرَبِّهُمُ الْحُسْنَى وَالَّذِينَ لَمْ يَسْتَجِيبُوا لَهُ لَوْ أَنَّ لَهُمْ مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ جَمِيعًا وَمِثْلَهُ مَعَهُ لَافْتَدُوا بِهِ أُولَئِكَ لَهُمْ سُوءُ الْحِسَابِ وَمَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمُ وَبِئْسَ الْمِهَادِ So this is 17 and 18 that I've just read. Let's see what the study for answer sends down water from the sky to the river so that the river 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 beds flow according to their measure and the torrent carries a swelling froth and from that which they kindle in in the fire seeking ornaments or pleasure is a froth like unto it thus does god set forth truth and falsehood as for the frost it passes away as dross and as for that which benefits mankind, it remains on the earth. Thus does God set forth parables. Those who answer their Lord shall have that which is most beautiful. But those who do not answer the Lord, were they to possess all that is on the earth and the like of it, besides they would seek to ransom their, themselves thereby from punishment. So, what is this verse saying? And how does it relate to Surah Rad? Surah Rad already established that the secret of so much of, of all of existence, with all the variety that you see, is that it is fed by one source, water. And although the elixir of life produces an enormous great deal of variety. All of that is an indicator to the divine. And that God creates things in dualities and contrasts. But how does goodness come about? 
Well, your first hint is the growth of Thimar itself. You have a seed fed by water. The Thimar, whether you have female and male pollinating or pollinating within a single plant, you have roots, you have a stem, part that grows underground, part that grows above ground, fed by the same source. The part that grows, water flows in, the part, in, in that plant against the law of gravity that it goes upward. But in all processes, processes of growth and production, what there is a froth but natural froth is limited because God as the creator is efficient but yet creation that God creates takes a long time for it to be the state which we see it in, to be good and balanced. Think of the processes, natural processes of the earth. The natural processes of the earth are wholesome. It, it, it doesn't poison itself. It doesn't pollute itself. But it takes an incremental long time for it to be what it is. To resolve its dualities and its contrasts and to resolve it to attain balance. When human beings intervene, they produce a lot of froth. So, when Human beings are trying to produce, as the Quran says, hulia, or hilia, and mata'ah. Their process of creation produces froth. And the froth is symbolic for that which is not good. The nature of goodness is unlike froth. It is incremental and it takes, it, it exists in the long run. Is God promising that ultimately in all things, frost, nonsense, what is not good will evaporate and only goodness would stay? Only if we allow God's processes to work but not if we constantly intervene to prevent the settling of good and the constant production of froth. But this is core then, we get now to the heart of Surah Al-Rad itself. Surah Al-Rad 
remember that it is speaking to those Muslims and telling something as we will see further as to how they should approach change and saying it, it it's not an issue of theater and show it's not an issue of scoring points it is an issue remember that most of even those who tell you they believe they don't understand faith they even still have shirk in their heart it is understanding that the nature of goodness and we'll talk about that in a second is what you must you must seek and for goodness to take root it requires time determination deliberation and time and for those who understand this goodness is what they receive in their just reward but those who don't as Surah al itself will, will affirm in a second that their fate on this earth and in the hereafter is one of loss that all the material possessions that they will accumulate in an instant they would be willing to give up just to get out of a tough spot that they put themselves in so it affirms again that in the same way that darkness is not light is, is not the same as light those who can see and those who are blind or being blind and seeing is not the same and gives you the heart and the key for what is needed to, to produce the process of good that avoids froth. That good, the lasting good that God speaks about that is not froth. The heart and core of it. And look, it gives you literally like a, like um, um, a, a, um, what do you call it? A recipe, cooking recipe. الَّذِينَ يُوفُونَ بِعَهْدِ اللَّهِ وَلَا يَنْقُضُونَ الْمِثَاقِ وَالَّذِينَ يَصُلُونَ مَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ أَنْ يُوصَلْ وَيَخْشَوْنَ رَبَّهُمْ وَيَخَافُونَ سُوءَ الْحِسَابِ So, first, you keep God's covenant, but you keep your promises. 
I can't tell you how much is written on this point about keeping your promises. A Muslim doesn't betray. A Muslim's promise is supposed to be the golden standard. If you promise to do something, then people should, it should be as if it was, it's done. If you don't learn to honor your word and honor your promise and honor your trust and honor your covenant, there is no path forward. And there are no shortcomings. I mean, there's no shortcuts, sorry. So, for instance, there's so much written in this context where I say, um, just give you an example about that the Prophet ﷺ says, Hadith is often cited in this context, three types of people the Prophet will personally prosecute in the hereafter. A man who gave, who gave a trust and then broke it. Any kind of trust. You gave your word and then broke it. Man ahdan thumma ghadar wa rajulan istajara ajiran istawfa amalahu wa zalama that you hire someone and the, that person does their job and then you fail to pay them. And third, رَجُلًا حُرًّا فَاسْتَرَقَّ A man who abducts some, a free person and sells them into slavery and then takes the money. This is in response to people like uh, Jonathan Brown, who sees no problem with Islam and slavery. The Prophet ﷺ, in this among many hadiths, where the Prophet says, if you go around abducting people and selling them into slavery, I will prosecute you. In the same as if you hire someone and you fail to pay them, in the same that if you gave your word and you break it. Now, why is abducting someone and selling them into slavery important? Because then, that was the major source of slavery in the pre-modern times. Slavery from war was a limited source because it had to go through state decision to turn not to trade or ransom war captives, but to enslave them. And states only did that as reciprocal punishment for the enslavement of their own forces. So when the Prophet ﷺ came and said that you can't abduct people and sell them into slavery, that that's haram, that's, that legally that strangled slavery as an institution or was supposed to strangle slavery as an institution. So to try to now pretend that, well, oh no, you know, it was, Islam was always fine with slavery. 
Anyway, so all of that falls under Yufuna bil Ahd. So again, I underscore this. Ethics, morality, you are not going to forget the idea of reform if as an ethical matter, you can't even hire people and pay them their due. If you can't even promise and keep your word, then forget all the grand designs of we want to be this, we want, you know, I'm stating the obvious. It's not what you wear. It's not whether you wear a beard or not. It's not whether you put nail polish or not. It is at that level. Then, وَيَصِلُونَ مَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ أَنْ يُوصَلْ This is, as a, as, as a, as a, a moral ethical theory, is earth-shattering. Why? Because this is what, uh, 21? Uh, why am I not finding it? Oh, am I looking at the wrong? Oh, because it just says, who joined what God has commanded to be joined. Which doesn't really tell you anything. Um, okay. What is it that God commanded to be joined? Every natural bond that needs to be honored is what God commanded to be joined. So, the most basic and fundamental example, honor your parents. That's ma'amar Allahu bi an yusul. If you don't honor your parents, you've broken what God commanded to be joined. Loyalty between two, between married couple. If you betray your spouse, it's betrayal. When, when these Muslims say, oh, well, secret marriages are okay. But wait, how about betrayal? Ethical thought is in many ways very straightforward. Okay. What else? God commanded that you take care of the poor. God commanded that you take care of orphans. That's ma amar Allahu bihi an yusuf. What else? God commanded that you don't destroy the earth. God commanded that you don't even tear down a tree without just cause. And I'll give you a remarkable example in one second. Okay, so here are examples of what the scholars tell us are 
the types of things that God commanded that they be connected or uh, as joined. Okay. So one of the companions has asked, "Ma amar Allahu bihi an What is it? So it says, "Fayadkhul isal al-khayrat wa daf' al-afat wa ayadat al-marid wa shuhud al-janaz." That every charity you extend. Even visiting the sick is ma'amara Allahu bi an yusuf. Attending funerals, not saying I'm too tired, I don't want to go to the funeral. Wa ifsha' is salam, even just spreading salam. Wa tabassum fi wujuhin nas and smiling is ma'amara Allahu bi an yusuf. وَكَفِّ عَنْهُمْ And not harming people. وَكَفِّ عَنْ كُلِّ حَيَوَانِ حَتَّى الْهِرَّةِ وَالدَّجَاجَةِ That you also do not harm any animal including a cat and even a chicken. Qadi Ayyad was asked about the same verse. Qadi Ayyad was a famous Shafi'i jurist. And he says, Huh? Maliki. Maliki, Maliki. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, Maliki jurist. Um, so, he says, وَعَلَمُوا أَنَّ الْعَبْدَ لَوْ أَحْسَنْ كُلِّ الْإِحْسَانِ وَكَانَتْ لَهُ دَجَاجَةً فَأَسَاءَ إِلَيْهَا لَمْ يَكُنْ مِنَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ That if a person is good with every, everyone, but he had a chicken and he mistreated the chicken, he's no longer among the muhsineen, among the good. Mistreating a single chicken takes you from the category of the good to the bad. And from the category of those who do not join what Allah has commanded to be joined. Examples of this are many. There are just so many texts that we don't have the time for, but there are just so many. Dogs. Um, and there is an interesting report about a man who used to eat from the garbage and then he found a dog so he would share whatever he found in the trash with the dog and that this man the, the prophet describes as among the muhsineen because he shared what he found with the dog there are a lot of that right so keeping in your covenant Joining and notice, it's a general command, joining what God ordered you to join, but it opens the door to ethical and virtuous inquiry. It's like saying, if you don't understand virtue, there's no pass forward. 
And after that, you fear God and you fear accountability. It didn't escape the commentators that morality was placed before fear of God. In addition, you have patience because the patient, impatient will not prosper. This is not the path for the impatient. And and you pray and you spend both secretly and publicly and Imam al-Shafi was asked oh that's why I called Ayyad al-Shafi Imam al-Shafi was asked well isn't this redundant because it says so giving the poor is is joining what God joins so why does it say later on spent publicly and secretly as Shafi says because of the importance of this particular covenant of God will not bless a people who do not take care of their indigents there is just if, if you don't know how to take care of the those who do who ha, do not have there is no path forward and now notice wa bil and the real learn to repel bad with good. We are not, we're, ta- we're not talking about criminal penalties here. We're talking about the path for incremental change to goodness. For those who don't want to live in frost, but want to live in goodness. In order to do that, your morality has to be, I do not respond to evil with evil. If you do not have that morality, there is no path forward other than froth. And as a consequence, because Allah knows that this is a difficult path, Jannatu Adn, that they go to heaven with their who their spouses or their family or their loved ones who who makes it to heaven. Salamun alaykum bima sabartum. This is the award for persevering for your tenacity because it is a difficult path. And then to underscore this in 25, as to those who break covenants and 
do not and and sever what God has ordered to be joined. And then it spells it out. What is it that they do when they when they do not when they sever what God has ordered to be joined? They cause corruption on earth. You've suduna fil art. It spells out the obvious. Not keeping your covenants and not joining what God has ordered to be joined is causing corruption on earth. And because of that, that they are cursed. And the end in a bad place. Now, su'adar could include consequences on this earth and the hereafter. Because the bad abode, and you can fill in the blanks for the bad abode. <coughs> I spilled on myself. I tried to finish the tea too quickly because I had no sub. It's too good. And I was not among the patient. Allah punished me with some major corruption on my jalabiya. You, you got frothy. Yeah, very frothy. It got very frothy. See, a, a live example of what happens. Do not do as I do or you'll swim in frost. And your beard will have frost too. Okay. Now, there is, in Sufi Ask the Fasir, the passage on the streams and froth um, has a very beautiful treatment in Sufi Al-Tafasirs. So I'll just read a sample passage and then I'll paraphrase it. Uh, um, before I do that, there is a hadith, by the way, that every Muslim should know, um, where the Prophet says, La imana liman la amana lah. وَلَا دِينَ لِمَنْ لَا عَهْدَ لَهُ لَا إِمَانَ لِمَنْ لَا أَمَانَ لَهُ If people cannot trust you, then you have no iman. If you're not trustworthy, then the idea that you have iman is, is ridiculous. And if you if you do not keep your covenants, your promises, then you have no deen. Again, I underscore this because yes, I, I do have in mind that unsadly Muslims do not keep their appointments. You know, the worst people with appointments are Muslims. Muslims say, inshallah, to mean never. 
Muslims often make promises that they don't keep, understand that this is a major sin. It's not a small sin. If you are a Muslim and you can, people cannot count on your word, cannot trust you, then you are you have don't have iman and you don't have deen. And that's a major, major problem. When I see someone who's active in Islamic movements and they're not trustworthy in their business deals, then I know it's a failed Islamic movement immediately. I don't even bother with studying their literature, listening to their lectures, anything. If I see that they're not trustworthy in the way they handle money or the way they handle affairs, I know khalas. There's no, there's no way Allah will bless it. Islam was built on a foundation of ethics. No ethics, no Islam. Okay, now going back to the Sufi Tafsir. Remember that. لا إيمان لمن لا أمان له ولا دين لمن لا عهد له. Um, so here's a sample. أنزل من السماء أنزل من السماء من سماء القلوب ماء المحبة فسالت أودية النفوس بقدرها فاحتمل السيل زبدا رابيا من الأخلاق الزميمة النفسانية والصفات البهيمية الحيوانية وأنزل من سماء الأرواح ماء مشاهدات الأنوار والجمال فسالت أودية القلوب بقدرها So what he's saying is is that when Allah talks about sending water that flows in the streams, they understand that as Allah sending the water of love. And the water of love goes to the souls. And there are souls that are ready to receive the water of love and be nourished by it and grow. But there are souls like arid land that have akhlaq zamima, bad uh, ethics, wasifat bahimiya hayawaniya, and they are, they have animalistic characteristics. And then these people, when the water of love reaches them, it becomes froth. And it leaves no effect. It slides right over them, just like froth does. And then they have some very beautiful passages about that the water of love have sparklings of divine beauty that shimmer before the eyes. And again, it is the eyes of those who are ready to receive that beauty 
that absorbs it. While the eyes who are preoccupied with gluttony and animalistic characteristics, it's froth, it's nothing. Um, I mean, that metaphor is very important in Sufi traditions, generally, because it, 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 it's, it plays a huge role in Sufi poetry. It, um, from experience, I know that the, the advice you often get from shiuch is the water of God's love is flowing all around you, so open your heart to it. Uh, that's what often they'll tell you when you say, you know, I'm... Um, And when you say to them, well, how do I open my heart to it? And they'll say, I mean, the response that most typically you get is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ana jalees man dhakarani. That I am in the company of whoever remembers me. And they'll often say, do you remember Allah in your dhikr or do you project yourself unto Allah and remember yourself in your dhikr? Do do you want God for God or do you want God because you want yourself? Basically, you're in love with yourself and you want just God to elevate you to a pedestal. If you want to go and put you on a pedestal, it's not going to work. And until you learn to long for God as God, not long for the self, and want God to serve the self. Um, and and then if you say, and I'm just telling you a long conversation, just in the, if, if you say, well, how do I not long for myself and long for God. And I will never forget the answer to that. Suffer. Suffer. Only suffering will teach you not to long for yourself but long for God. I actually asked and said, well, how do I suffer? Because I was an obnoxious young person. Um, And he said, if God knows that you want to suffer, for God's sake, God will make you suffer. And the sheikh was right. Um, Okay, where am I? All right. So already you see that Surah Al-Rad for in the Sufi tradition plays a huge role, but let us continue with the journey. Okay. Now, where are we? Uh, <coughs> وَيَقُولَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوْلَا أُنْزِلِ عَلَيْهِ آيَةً إِنَّ اللَّهِ يَضُلِّ مَا يَشَاءُ This is 27. 
this is what already talked about uh, the teasing the prophet saying why don't you have a miracle it's the same thing 28 now this is again one of the most famous verses perhaps in the entire Quran and definitely in Surah Ra'd but the entire the Quran as well Um, those who when they remember God it brings them comfort and tranquility with God's remembrance tranquility is brought to the hearts of course you can predict that no one has written on this verse as much as the Sufis have. I want just to share with you a sample of the discussions that take place around this verse because there's too many for us to even come close to covering. Um, here it says, <laughs> ومتأثر لا يؤثر وموجود يؤثر في شيء ويتأثر عن شيء فالمؤثر الذي لا يتأثر هو الله سبحانه وتعالى والمتأثر الذي لا يؤثر هو الجسم فإنه ذات قابلة فإنه ذات قابلة للصفات المختلفة والآثار المتنافية وليس له خاصية إلا القبول فقط أما الموجود الذي يؤثر طارة ويتأثر أخرى فهي الموجودات الروحانية وذلك لأنها إذا توجهت إلى الحضرة الإلهية صارت قابلة للآثار الفائضة عن مشيئة الله تعالى وقدرته وتكوينه وإيجاده So what is, they're talking about this idea of what can be influenced by Allah's remembers and then they say says that there are three categories there's something that can only influence but is not influenced and that's Allah and something that is influenced but doesn't influence and that's physical bodies but it is the soul that can both be influenced and influence and the reason that he has this, that he's arguing for the three-part division is he's saying that in order to understand how, if, if you are having trouble feeling that the remembrance of Allah brings you tranquility, learn to separate between the reactions of your body which could be simply from bad habits and the understandings of your soul of what the remembrance is and experience the reactions of your body 
as if you are watching an allergic reaction that you learn to think of as an as an ailment but not allow it to destabilize your soul so and he's talking in the context of people saying well you know I will be scared and I will break into hives and when I remember God I still have hives or I'm still shaking or I'm still you know and it's saying, well, that, that's okay because these are your body reacting according to habit. But your soul is a different matter. Anyway, it's much longer discussions. Um, wait. Uh, yeah, so, oh, okay, I, I left out this part. Uh, it says, so I forgot this part. What he's saying is that if you don't feel that tranquility by in Allah's remembrance, then no, then you have a problem. And that is you only, you are too focused on observing the physical world. You only notice the movement of bodies in the physical world. Which means that in, in our modern language, you need to be less materialistic. And the more you deem, decrease your reliance on material things, the more the remembrance of your Lord will, in fact, bring you tranquility. The, 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 there's just so much written of this type of these types of discourses. Um, okay, but let's move on. Look at verse 30, where it says, 30, 
and they don't believe in the Rahman. There is a reported occasion for revelation here that could have only taken place in Medina. This is part of that debate of Mecca, Medina, Mecca, Medina, uh, where it, it, this is the, it, it very late when the Prophet uh, in speaking to the Meccans, trying to negotiate a, a well, actually speaking to some of the disbelievers in, in, in Arabia, because it wasn't the Meccans, but in, in trying to negotiate a, a, a ceasefire, he, he says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And they respond, we don't know what a Rahman is. And uh, oh, Muhammad now has two gods, one called Allah and one called Rahman. The only significance of this is just that it, it gives you a sense of why this whole confusion about whether it's Meccan or Medinan it's not likely that that was an occasion for revelation at all. I have to say, I mean, although that that event took place in, in Hudaybiyah, that event took place before Hudaybiyah, but it's not likely that that was an occasion for revelation. Okay. So the next important thing to emphasize is uh, 31. What time is it? It's ten o'clock. I'm going to take a vote, and the vote will include people on the, on the, um, yeah, but you have to come conduct the vote. Oh. <laughs> we, here's Proposition A. Who, who's an interactive? Turn on cameras. We've got to see you. Hello. <laughs> Come to life, people. <laughs> Michael and Naman. Salam alaikum. I don't think I actually know you. Friends of friends. Okay. Proposition number one. We continue for another hour, finish at 11, and inshallah finish Surah the rod Proposition number two. We don't continue for another hour, and we continue Surah the rod on Tuesday. But then on Tuesday we only do Surah al Oh, maybe I'll add... A short surah like um, oh you're right like <laughs> That's not from you know or we can make it a longer Q and A too I mean we can introduce other Q and A's oh. sorry I was driving Salamu oh. alaikum no you spilled the I coke I spilled oh my god okay 
Do you see? I always spill. Did I get you? And you spilled it on my book. <laughs> and on me. I'm well known. I spill all the time. And it's a very funny thing because whenever I spill, I always spill on the sheikh. It doesn't matter whether he's sitting on my right, on my left, far in front of me, far in back. Somehow it always gets on him. This time, um, I just spilled on his book. And it happened. it's happened so much that now we take it as a sign of good I things. think it's a sign. <laughs> There's more frothiness. That means that we're doing something out of order, like we're, we're rushing or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm starting to rush the surah. No, oh. no, don't rush. Don't rush. Yeah, don't want to rush the surah. I get that feeling as well. Okay, let's do the vote then. Wait, Sheikh, what do you, oh, prefer? Yeah. Do, what do you Sheikh, prefer? And does anyone want to suggest pros and cons so we can inform the vote? I think we're all unanimous as long as Sheikh doesn't rush. Yeah. All unanimous as long as Sheikh doesn't rush. If you took, if you took another hour right yeah. now, is that an hour with rushing? If you took another hour now, is that another hour okay. with rushing? Okay. If I don't rush, if I really am honest and I cover everything I cover, or could cover, if I'm being really honest and do Q and A as well, then we'd finish at twelve. And no tarawiyah. Okay. So Tuesday. No, but we have to do tarawiyah. <laughs> <laughs> you also have your talk tomorrow. And you have your talk tomorrow uh, with Tarkas. We cannot skip Tarawih on the last day. That's haram. I didn't have but for the talk tomorrow, for the professor's own well being, maybe it's good to get him to get some break and rest. For you know? your own good being, because of the talk yeah. tomorrow mm -hmm. with Tarkas, you, you, you need to have some rest tonight. I get the feeling we should. So if we do it at midnight, we'll finish probably till two. Yeah. Sheikh has to be at that. Yeah, we have to get up early to prepare for tomorrow's talk. <laughs> 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 Are you going to pray Istikhara for us, Ronke? <laughs> okay, do it real quick. Okay, vote without discussion. Just take a vote. Okay. 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 How many people... So that what we're voting on is either we continue on and finish tonight without, without rushing, right? So we would look to finish around midnight, inshallah. We, and we haven't had dinner yet either, so. Ah, who cares? Okay. <laughs> um, and then we do tarawiyah, and then we have uh, the talk tomorrow. Or we, what, end now? End now, and continue and surat rat on Tuesday. Continue surat on Tuesday. Okay, so how many people vote for continuing on tonight? One vote. <laughs> One? Okay, and then how many people vote for continuing on Tuesday? Okay, I think that is a pretty oh wow unanimous. See, we 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 do things according to shura and democracy. <laughs> a message to the leaders of the Muslim world here and there and everywhere. And it works. It works. Uh, okay, I would have voted for the first. I know you would oh, have. But so let's do the first. No. That's why I didn't vote. No. If you prefer to do the first. No, but he. No, he, that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> it, I go. I follow the opinion of the majority. He, he doesn't believe in self care. So uh, that's an issue. Then the second for sure. Yeah. I think because I don't believe in eating, I don't believe in sleeping, <laughs> I don't believe in rest. It's unfortunate. I, love all of those I, I, 
I believe that the camel should just be let go. No. Well, thank God for grace. <laughs> but the straw might break the camel's back. I, I think the camel needs the back broken, the legs broken, and the neck broken, and the camel needs to be buried. No, no, that's, that's why we that's why we don't let the camel. Like, this metaphor has gone out of control. Yeah, for those who who are not aware, it, no, this no. kind of progressed from tying your camel to somehow Sheikh becoming the camel. <laughs> so. <laughs> And so, yeah, so all of us here are responsible for taking care of the camel. The camel doesn't really want to take care of himself, so we have to do it. <laughs> okay, so, so with thank that, you. Do, uh, uh, have Mafaz hold on back. Okay, so Mafaz, if you can hang on so we can talk a little bit about tomorrow too. Uh, um, but with that, then we will stop here. Uh, we will see some of you, I guess, in Tarawiyah, whoever wants to join us. Yes. Uh, what? How and many days of Ramadan is left? How many days of Ramadan is left? <laughs> Four? Four or five. Four or five. Four or five. That's sort of sad. It's really sad. Yeah. Can we pretend that we have another Ramadan? Sure. Um, so hopefully we'll see you in Tarawiyah tonight. If not, um, and then uh, we'll see, we'll see you Tuesday, tomorrow, inshallah. inshallah. Tomorrow for the talk with. Oh, tomorrow. Oh, yes, tomorrow. Oh. And then, tomorrow, yeah. um, and then Tuesday we'll finish, inshallah. So. Okay, thank you everybody for being here and thank you for the vote. Have a wonderful evening. We'll see you soon, inshallah. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. Assalamu alaikum.